This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1640, Limits, Our Future, and Slow Money. In this in-person recording, David Bilbrey catches up with Woody Tash at the Prairie Festival that was held at the Land Institute earlier this year. During their time together, they examine the limits to growth as they apply to economics and our market system, the personal responsibility that we can have in living within our own choices and how they affect the planet, and also touch on where Woody sees the slow money movement going in years to come. So let's go ahead and get you started with those two, and I'll join you again afterwards. So I'm here at the Prairie Festival with Woody Tash, following up on our conversation from the slow money event the other night. Uh, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt and uh, the Permaculture Podcast. So Woody, how's the festival been so far for you? Well, any place where we get to hear Wendell Berry is okay with me. <laughs> Absolutely. So how long have you been um, been aware of the Land Institute and been coming out oh, here? Well, this is only the second time I've come here, but I've been aware of it for decades. It's just not on my regular path right? physically. But yeah, I've been, been following Wes and Wendell for a long time. How has that formed your perspectives? Well, uh, Wendell more than Wes. I mean, it always intrigues me that, like, Wendell's best friend is pursuing a fairly big solution to a big problem, and Wendell writes frequently that we, you know, some of our biggest problems are our big solutions. <laughs> so it's just very sort of intriguing to watch their banter go back and forth and everything. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, you could describe what's going on here as like a, as like a greener green revolution. It's like it's like another. I mean, it is a plant breeding. Obviously, the green revolution was plant breeding. You know, trying to trying to attack some of the technological. I mean, this is a form of technology. I guess you'd say maybe it's low technology, but it's still technology. Mm-hmm. Trying to trying to figure out tech, you know technological solutions or scientific solutions. And Wendell's more focused on the cultural, behavioral, sort of human solutions my own thing tends to go more towards that a little bit it's like i just get nervous whenever we whenever we tamper with natural systems in an effort to improve them Mm -hmm. in this case it's to restore them so it's a little more it's way more nuanced than that but i think the real challenge is we just got to change our behavior individuals have to change their behavior and i always hit whenever i'm in a big room like this and listening to all these issues i always think about money of course because that's the thing i'm focused on and it's like we have to just take control of our money. I mean, we have, money is embodied energy. It's labor and resources and whatever that other that have been accumulated. And if we don't change the way that is flowing, all of our good intentions are going to. I'm not going to say come to naught. We need to keep doing everything, but that's as long as we leave that off, we're leaving off a huge part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So, Wendell was talking today a lot about limits and the economy and uh, all of those themes. And again, I think we have to make a personal. It's like, as individuals, are we willing to limit our... And then you just fill in the blank. How much money we make. How much, how much stuff we accumulate. How much stuff we consume. You know, all that stuff. And I think unless we get the conversation down to indivi- individuals and, and the places where we live, it's pretty hard to... It stays very abstract. Right. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about limits today. And so how do you... The thought of limiting what we consume or limiting anything in this culture... Bring, strikes fear immediately because we're afraid we're losing freedoms or, or liberties of some sort. But it was well stated that you know, modern capitalism is not really freedom. Well, right, it's like false freedom. You can have 
when when um, some of the best stuff about limits to me, somebody, I'm sure many people actually have said something like like when an artist works on a canvas, the canvas has limits. Otherwise, there'd be no structure to the thing. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. limits create freedom. Limits create imagination and whatever. If you if you think there's no limits, then um, discipline, form. I don't know. I'm not enough of a philosopher and all that stuff to say, but but it's obvious. Limits are not a bad thing, right? By themselves, they're not a bad thing. But it, but we get um, schooled that when it comes to economics, it is a bad thing. So you know uh, there there are good limits and bad. It's like anything. There's good limits and bad limits. But right. the idea that all limits are bad is, is is really ridiculous. Or the idea that limitless consumption is a good thing. I mean, this is what E.F. Schum- so the word E.F. Schumacher never got evoked here. It's kind of interesting. I never thought of that before. So E.F. Schumacher, who, um, you know, he, he didn't live very long, unfortunately. He died at a young age. But, he, but um, Small is Beautiful came out right around the time of Wendell's book, um, Unsettling of America. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think Schumacher's book came out a few years earlier, in the early 70s. Schumacher um, was a um, Rhodes Scholar, senior economist for the British Coal Board after World War II. But he did... He was sometimes derisively referred to as a hippie economist because later in his life he went to the Far East and got acquainted with, with Eastern religion and whatnot and came back to uh, England and realized that Western economics was, was out of sync with nature. It's pretty basic. But he was one of the... He's the person who... You know, the whole idea of small is beautiful. I mean, he's the one who put, I would say, who really planted the flag about limits by... by um, Stating, he sort of had two postulates, I guess you'd say, or axioms. One was that unlimited economic growth on a finite planet is an impossibility, and that one is can still be debated by various economists and technophiles, different things, because it's a very big statement and it's it's kind of has a lot of imponderables in there. But the corollary, the second part that he said, I think is much easier to defend, and most people sort of get it. Don't you don't even need to have an argument. That is that unlimited. Consumption is not synonymous with improved well-being. I'm sorry, increased consumption is not synonymous with increased well, improved well-being. Mm-hmm. Meaning the more you consume doesn't make you better off all the time. That's a personal, that's a very personal kind of um, interface with that idea of limits. So if, if, that's, if that's true, that we don't have to always consume more in order to be better off, in fact, sometimes more consumption is bad, then it kind of gets you to realize also that the idea of limits to growth from a macro standpoint is not necessarily horrible. That some limits are good. Right. But again, to me, to me, the, I don't know. Wendell made some. He he made some. He, he was today. He was riffing on how both extreme liberals and extreme conservatives are sort of the same in many many ways when it comes mm-hmm. to limits. Yeah. Like neither one believes in limits. And I I think that's really the key thing. It's not either. It's not. If Schumacher also said, um, if everything was small, he'd be arguing in favor of big. So it's about balance. It's about just, just, you know, when you say limits, it's sort of like, oh, you're for growth or you're against growth. Well, it's not, you know, for or against it. It's, you're for balance. You know, you're for harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about either or things. It's just about a sensible, you know, some fra- some values that that sort of transcend all those either or choices. Well, that that kind of makes me think of our conversation about produce, being consumers versus producers the other day. If you are a producer of even some things, even having a garden and understanding what's involved in that, that and built into that, there's limitations. Because you, you know that it takes a lot of energy to create this thing. So if everyone's a producer of something, then that starts to get that, uh, that idea ingrained in, into the culture. 
so I think that maybe is right. But but I think there are a lot of people who don't produce a thing. Right. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know. I'm not enough of an economist to know a statistic on that. But I think there's a pretty significant portion of Americans who actually don't produce anything. Right. Or or for whom what they produce is so abstract. Like they, you sit in an office. And you're contributing to the productivity of something, mm. but you're not actually making anything with your hands. Right. You actually don't make anything. And I think it's that basic. It's like doing something with your hands. Like when you're in the garden, you're putting your hands in the soil. So right. even if you have one tomato plant, you're sort of dealing with some kind of challenge right. of right. Produ- producing something. Um, I think it's I think it's a huge challenge because if no one produ- if people have no sense of what it actually takes to make something, then their sense of why they what how to take care of it, how to dispose of it, how much of it to use, like what the actual value of it is. It's certainly true of food. We know that's true of food. People who have no idea how to grow food have no idea how to value food. So it's just something you buy in a store and they see like one thing is equivalent to another thing. It's very hard to, that looks like a green bean, that looks like a green bean. One says organic, one doesn't. Right. One costs 72 cents more a pound than the other one. It's like, how do, what, what is, there's no sense of what the actual value of it is. I think that's why people who are around farmers or who do some farming will actually see what it takes to grow food and then and then see what it takes to grow good food and then see what it takes to like tend soil and create soil fertility. You just have a whole different appreciation. You do. Right. So we were talking about cities a lot this morning too. You know, everyone's away from the land now. That's a, well, a big part of what Wendell is talking about. So if you're not connected to the land, if you don't experience it, you don't know what it is to be on it, literally. It's pretty hard to know what to make of anything because there's, there's no real value. You know, everything is abstract. Everything is just something you buy in the store. So, so it'd be nice to think the pendulum is about to swing back. He, he was talking about whether, you know, now that we're down to less than one percent, he was talking about whether the farms have bottomed, bottomed out. Yeah. Right. So, common sense would say there's a pendulum and it has to swing back. That's a it, hopeful thought. It seems impossible to imagine right now. In, in fact, I don't know if you remember. I read a little thing. But you know, I'm working on my next book, and I said stuff about how in 1700 it was impossible to imagine the United States of America, and in 1800 it was impossible to imagine passenger pigeons going extinct. Right. I just listed these things. How each hundred years there was something like going to the moon in 1900 we couldn't imagine going to the moon. So maybe I should add in there that something like in 2000 we can't imagine in there being 10 million farmers, you know, going back the other way, the pendulum right. going back. It does seem impossible to imagine right now, actually. But it's so that the way you're stating that, and you, that struck me the other night, is so hopeful. It's like, yeah, there's we're living in a. You can see all these things that were completely impossible, seemingly, and that we've we've accomplished. And the small farm. I mean, there's a huge resurgence of awareness, and and even young people wanting to do that. So I think it is moving that way. Um, and so, but it's still. I mean, I think people who are realists let's say whatever that means are looking at that going okay there's some there's a renewal there's a resurgence of interest in a small population it's still statistically very very mm-hmm. small and so to, to actually imagine let's say a million new small and mid-sized organic farms in this country um i would say most people can't imagine it mm-hmm. I, I can barely i'm not saying i can imagine it but i can at least i'm really saying it i don't know so maybe I am almost imagining it. Right. But to actually feel like it would happen, that's the point. To imagine that it would actually happen as opposed to just be an aspiration. It's pretty daunting. I mean, all the forces are still going against it. The pendulum is still swinging the other way, right? So it's hard to, like, when's it going to start coming back? Right. 
but I do, you know, I do sort of, I do think believe in pendulums. I do believe in that history doesn't just go in one direction. That things it always does go swing. Back they, right. So how that swing comes back, whether it's collapse. I mean, when you hear David Orr talking about the carbon, and you know, it's pretty hard to not just want to run screaming out of the room when you talk about carbon in the atmosphere and just wondering how yeah. that's gonna how that's gonna balance itself out. Well, and change usually happens, and Fred talked about this this morning, uh, he's like, moments of crisis, he was quoting, quoting Thomas yeah. Berry, moments yeah. of crisis, crisis are moments of grace. And for real change to happen, you almost always, either personally or as a, as a nation, there's a crisis that happens, and then people become aware of what the real problem is and start to address it. So unfortunately, there's going to be some kind of crisis for that to happen on a for the small farm to be restored on a large scale. Probably awareness that it's needed because we're kind of around people that are aware that it's needed. But there's a whole world of people. I go to work and they don't have, they don't have a thought about it. So right. the more that that awareness can get out there and why it's important, yeah. I think is is huge. So slow money certainly is a part of that. And uh, as the stories get out there about what it's doing and how that, I mean, just the few stories in Northeast Kansas of slow yeah, money are yeah. amazing, you know, really encouraging because, uh, again, that idea virus is getting out through the story. It's just the neighbors around yeah. the, the ladies doing the non-GMO grain yeah. place. I mean, it's changing things yeah. slowly maybe, but the ability to get stories out through <laughs> podcasting and internet, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing, I think it's, yeah. I mean, it's... It really is significant. Yep. So, where would you like to, where would you like to see slow money go in the next fifty years? We're talking about having um, longer time scales than five. Well, I, I mean, to me, it seems possible that a generation or two from now there'll be a whole other kind of sector in finance. Right now, we have sort of investing slash venture capital, meaning just what I just oversimplifies fast money just money that's that is um, chasing the highest possible financial return all the time lowest risk highest return and uh, with I guess you'd say uh, computer algorithms and derivatives representing the most extremely abstract form of that right and the other end you have philanthropy which is just I think of as dead fast money meaning it's not slow money it's 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 the surplus that's come off the fast money and then it's grants. It's not an investment. It's a it's a gift. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. But there's only so much of that. And then in the middle, you have all of these. There's nothing right now. There's no organized sector in the middle. But but if you if you think of that, we were just talking about a million small and mid-sized farms. You say, where's the capital going to come from to support that? The buying of the land, the building of the hoop houses, all the processing and distribution at the local level that's been gutted by consolidation. All these things. You're talking about. You know, phenomenally large sums of money. Unless you believe the government's going to do like some kind of New Deal thing, I suppose I, there are people who believe that eventually the government's going to have to have a massive intervention to restructure the economy. I don't know about that. I just don't know about it. I know there's not enough philanthropy and, uh, to do it, and plus, philanthropy isn't the right kind of money because we're talking about capital that's needed for business. So, to me, it just uh, screams out there's going to be a whole other sector. I call it slow money. Sometimes you use the term nurture capital, which is, which I like too. But it doesn't matter what you call it, and it may not be called either of those two things. They, they just may be part of a larger thing. Um, large flows of money at the local level from the people who live in the communities to do the things they, that are needed, of which local food systems is one. There's a lot of other things like local media, independent media, 
um, affordable local housing, energy. local energy. There's a whole million things which, which we know we need, but which you can't make a lot of money doing. But they are business, but the, and they are, and it is business. So if you just think about that for a second, you realize it needs to be a whole new source of well, of it's capital for that. The change has to be cultural for that to happen. That's what yeah, definitely. Wendell's talking about. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's the thing. You know, the thing it's happening with the transition town movement because if they're yep. looking at energy and food and whatever. The money, there's money in society, but it's going to the wrong places. Even right. among aware people, it's go, you know, their excess money is going into Wall Street or whatever. Right. And if they, even though there's not a huge return, if it's for their local energy company in their neighborhood and their local, all those things, then it's about that when that cultural change happens, then there's the money to create the distribution centers, all those different things you need for small agriculture. Yeah. And, but it, it takes a cultural mind shift and paradigm shift for people to know that they need to put their money in those right, places. But that's, that's, so we're, that's exactly what slow money is. We're just creating a framework to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We should be doing that. Right. It's just a set of ideas that, that rationalize the you know, behavior, that just you know, describe a, a, dest- a, a, a different destination. Have there been slow money projects in urban agriculture? Or is it mostly oh, yeah. No, those are, there's some are. It's, it's mostly more rural but um, no there's like uh, the one that's popping in my the first one that pops in my mind is Brooklyn Grange it's a rooftop <laughs> one acre rooftop garden in Brooklyn a garden farm really it's an acre like they produce I think 50,000 pounds of organic stuff a year on, yeah, that on a picture rooftop. of that was amazing yeah well, that's in my slideshow that's yeah. why it's in my head um, there are yeah if you poke around on our website I mean there's a, there, there are I'm just trying to think of other like directly urban things I guess most of them are outside you know more suburban and, and rural than urban um, and uh, because we believe in the soil so if you had like a vertical hydroponic thing you know like a vertical hydroponic mm-hmm. pharmacy I wouldn't be against that I'm just not as excited about that as I am about actually working in the soil because yeah. of all the carbon issues and health issues and mm-hmm. I mean I think the challenge is to go back to the land is to is to enable a whole bunch of people to stay on the land or go back to the land and actually take care of it and put carbon back in the soil for all kinds of reasons so, well, so. And, and the city is the cities came up today cities can't exist without the the country, the rural countryside supports the city's ability to even exist. So right, but Wendell's put the whole point of Wendell's, well, not his whole point, but one of his main points is for that to keep working, you have to have people living in the rural areas who know how to take care of the land. Right, and that's the part we're losing because if you think that it can be five thousand acres can be taken care of by a five hundred thousand dollar machine with very few people, right. You will get food for some period of time, a generation or two, but eventually you lose the soil and the quality of the food and the water and the soil erosion, all the car- all the collateral damage that happens from going through that way. Eventually, will catch up with us. Right. We're somewhere in there now, or somewhere in that place of kind of going from sort of endless subsidy of nature from millennia of soil production to whatever it's going to be after we use it all up. Right. And the rural has to be the priority right now because the city can't live without the rural, and the rural's the thing that's the most depleted. So that yep. makes sense. Yep. Are there any examples that come to mind that are good examples of where slow money really helped to create that cultural connection? Oh my God, we're too small to. Yeah, I mean, I just say we're just little dots of we're just a few dozen people here and a few dozen, a few hundred people there who are just trying to just begin doing a little something that's moving in the right direction you know it, w- it wouldn't 
I'm not talking about large-scale culture, just uh, we're the most significant um, connections where slow money helped somebody, a small farmer, whatever, build something, and it created more connections. Than oh, but that, but no, then I'll say the opposite. Every single thing we're everyone, doing everyone is doing that. <laughs> so we've done over 500 deals um, in dozens of communities over the last six or seven years. We've just passed the $50 million mark this year of total investing, which is both extremely small and somewhat significant in a small in a small but interesting way um so yeah every one of the if you look at any one of these you know, you make a five thousand dollar loan for a hoop house or a thing or just or a nine thousand dollar loan for a walk behind tractor or a or we made a twenty-three thousand five hundred dollar loan for a refrigerated truck, used a used refrigerated truck for a four-acre organic farm, half flowers, half vegetables, and you just see the impact of the. I mean, if you are close enough and you see what it is, the impact is immediate. It's, and it's also the impact on the people making loans is very positive. Mm-hmm. The sense of um, of engagement of actually doing something concrete that's making a positive difference. Sounds Pollyannish to say it that way, but but people people who are starting to many of the people who are doing slow money behind them is this dark cloud of of uh, you know we believe in climate change we believe that our institutions are are failing you know all these different horrible things that are going on and then we do these little tiny positive things like lend money for a refrigerated truck and it's extremely heartening it's it's uh, it's without being naive about like it's not solving everything but just to do something that has a distinctly positive and tangible outcome is a really good thing so i would say everyone um i'm sure a few of the loans that we've all made around the country were stupid but i but i haven't heard of no none of them popped to mind that says i wish we didn't do that one i mean i think they all there's something innately positive in every in every one of those acts mm-hmm. well good well thank you for taking a few minutes to talk my pleasure i hear the talking over there so let's go back and absorb back some wisdom and that was woody tash and david bilbrey you can find out more about woody at slowmoney.org and david at ecothinkit.com two quick announcements before we get into my thoughts from this episode are that fleischwitz farm in gray county southwest ontario is looking for someone to start in May 2017 as a natural building intern. Couples are welcome and even encouraged, if you'd like. And a PDC isn't necessary, but would be an asset. As my friend Simon, who's asked me to help him find someone for this project, expects that it would help throughout this project. If you'd like to find out more information or have me connect you with Simon, Get in touch by either giving me a call, 717-827-6266, or sending an email to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. The second is that as part of a year-end fundraiser, Joshua Hughes at Verde Energia Pacifica is partnering with the podcast to give away a PDC valued at $1,600 to a listener of the show. Anyone who donates $50 or more to the podcast between now and December 16th is automatically entered to win. For complete details, including how to enter if you aren't able to donate at this time, are available at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash Costa Rica. You'll also find a link for this in the show notes. What I, what really stands out for me in this conversation is what we can do by changing the way that we use our resources, primarily money. We get to vote with our dollars in every choice that we make. Do we spend it on goods that bear the American flag but are made in China? Or do we actually seek out those things that come from our country? Do we decide to buy local grass-fed beef or do we not consider where our food is coming from? Do we go to the big 
regional grocery store or instead travel to our farmer's market? Do we put money into the bank or do we put it into the people who we care about who are around us? These are some questions that I've been working on my own way as I try to narrow my integrity gap. And I have an interview with Joshua Hughes coming up that looks at this a bit further as he's looking to use business tools in order to invest in small scale projects in a similar way that slow money does this. There's also a pair of conversations with Sean Chamberlain, the editor of Surviving the Future and Lean Logic, where we kind of dig into this further about what we can do as individuals to really make a big difference. As arose in a conversation with someone this weekend at a small permaculture gathering, one of the things that really stands out for me about permaculture, even as I raise kind of these dichotomous decisions between, say, grass-fed beef from a local producer or buying something we don't know where it comes from, from our anonymous supermarket, is that one of the things that I love about permaculture is that it's without judgment. At the end of the day, if the best choice that you can make is to buy from that big supermarket, then do that. Maybe you have limited financial resources and that's where the best bang for your food buck comes from. And that's the best that you can do. Or maybe you're limited on time. And having that one stop at the grocery store and doing all your shopping there, even if it does include processed products, is what works best for you right now. We're in a period of transition. And within a culture, as my rewilding friends constantly <laughs> point out to me, where there are a lot of decisions that have already been made for us. Depending on where you live, there may not be any farmer's markets. There may not be locally available produce, or all the stores that you shop at import everything in, or that in order to buy American, if you're somebody here in the States, that you have to buy from an online retailer that might not have the best history, but it's about making the best choices that you can where you are. And I just ask that you examine the choices that you make, that you do the best you can each day, whatever that might be, and that any choice that you make that you're deciding what it is that you do, and not living on autopilot, just making it through your day, but applying those ideas of earth care and people care and limiting consumption in the way that you live your life. There are personal and systemic changes that we can make that make a difference. And I think that by being models for others and increasing our integrity while we decrease our footprint can create, can create the truly lasting multi-generational change that's needed so that we can have permanent agriculture and permanent culture. Agree, disagree, get in touch. Show at the Permaculture Podcast is, of course, my email address. And if you do send something there, know that it might take a little while for me to get back to you. If you'd like a more immediate response, give me a phone call, 717-827-6266. One of my favorite things is always to receive a letter in my mailbox. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And as I usually close each episode, and as I usually close each episode with, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.